Hey, welcome to Charismatic Dirtbags, a podcast about rock stars. I'm Ted Cluck, joined as always in studio by my co-hosts and co-dirtbags, Truman Forehand and David Alcazar. I don't know why I stumbled over your name, Trudes. It's because I almost called you Trudy and then Trudes, and I was just thinking about it too much. But we'll leave all this in. Uh, boys, how are you? You're not dirtbags, by the way. I feel like I need to put that at the top of, of every ep. Um, it's, just a, it's just a thing that we do, and it's a way that we talk about rock stars and we talk about their charismatic qualities, their dirtbag qualities, and we bring the audience through a series of questions on rock star qualities as a way of understanding rock stars better. Now, the last time we did this show, you guys were on a high. You were on a concert high. Oh, yeah. You were on a buying merch high. You were each wearing like $100 plus worth of merch into the studio. And um, you, you, you had that post-1975 concert high. Today's just a regular day, regular day of school. Um, but because we're radio pros, we're going to get here in the studio and we're going to work through these questions. And we've got an interesting one uh, today in Taylor Swift. Interesting rock star, massive rock star. Uh, I want to start with you, Trudes, and we'll just go around the room. What is your experience with this person? So as you think about Taylor Swift, the artist, the rock star, the dirtbag, what's your experience with her? So I, I will go on record. Mm-hmm. Transparently, that's okay. As a as a recovering Taylor Swift hater, okay. Um, because <laughs> fascinating. Was, Talk about that. Well, there was a long period of time where, like, you know, this is like during her transition from country to pop, mm-hmm. where she was like one of those artists that like everybody that I found annoying mm-hmm. liked. Mm-hmm. Um, and by everybody that I found annoying, it's just like I was trying to be pretentious, and they liked yeah. things that were popular. Yeah. This is when One Direction was big, and I hated yeah, yeah, them, yeah. too. Um, so now, was, who were you liking? Who were you hanging your trying-to-be-pretentious hat on at that point? I, mean, I, I find this stuff fascinating. So this was this was the era, um, like, you know, this was like high school for me, I guess. Yeah, yeah. This was the era when, you know, it was the tail end of the, the boot stomp hipster banjo thing. Oh, yeah. Back <laughs> Dude, when, like, shout out hipster like, banjos as a thing. Yes. I remember that era distinctly, though. So you were kind of doing a little hipster banjo content yeah. for your own yeah. persona. Now, did it get as far, and sorry, I'm doing like digressions upon digressions here, but did it get as far as like asking your parents for a banjo? Did we get to that point with it? <laughs> no, I was never at like actually playing a banjo point. I did play the violin for a little while, and I, I yeah. did specifically ask my violin teacher to teach me how to play the fiddle. Yes. Um, that, so, that became a way to like un-homeschool un- your violin endeavors exactly. and make it make yeah. it cool okay. yeah it's like i want to quit doing recitals at yeah. the university where my violin teacher teaches. you know teaches yeah, yeah yeah yeah. and and i want to start you know playing the fiddle around a campfire or whatever totally. that never happened but like that was the vibe this is yeah. the point when you were trying to do folk music and Love it. look like you were a lumberjack totally yeah did you get um did you ever get a fedora did it progress that far please tell no. me you didn't get a fedora <laughs> that was that was a different that was a kind of a different pretentiousness yeah at yeah. that point in time like like there was there was my kind of pretentiousness, which was like the the you know suspenders banjo guy suspenders <laughs> yeah was, huge uh, yeah yep you know the fedora guy was a different kind of dude. This was the dude who watched Mad Men and was a little too much into black and white movies. Yeah yeah yeah, totally totally. Um, Alcazar, what's your experience with Taylor Swift? I guess mine would be similar um, in the sense that in high school, what I was trying to do with my music taste was like. I was listening to Radiohead, The Strokes, oh, yeah. The Cure. I wanted to be pretentious and different with what music I listened to, which of course is dumb because 
so many people listen to Radiohead and The Strokes and The Cure. It doesn't make me different. It just means I have a specific kind of taste. Dude, Radiohead was a great band to be smug about, though. Oh, you yeah. You know what I mean? If yeah. you're going for smugness, which is so fun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Radiohead delivered a lot of a lot of smugness, which you had to love them for that. Oh, yeah. And I, you, could I, do, I, like, you could do the thing where you're like, sure, a lot of people like them, but most of those people don't understand them. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, the understanding thing was massive with Radiohead. Um the intellectual now, band. <laughs> did you reach a point with Radiohead at, at any point where you just acknowledged that their music wasn't any fun? No, I actually love... I'm going to still defend Radiohead. Right. I think In Rainbows is one of the most gorgeous albums ever produced. Okay. I think it's great. But that being said, going to college, in some ways, studying under you, mm-hmm. has really opened up to me just how greedy I can be with my music. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I can love... Radiohead, mm-hmm. and I, I will die defending them. Yeah. And I can also love Taylor Swift. And there's no law that says yeah. I can't like both of them. Yeah, that's right. That's um, right. So my relationship with Taylor Swift as an artist really started to blossom in college. Yeah. Um, because I just kind of became more open to the music that other people were listening to. Yeah, that's a that's a great experience, and it's one of the like sneaky great things about going to college. And we always talk about college kind of in these. Um, aspirational terms as being a place where you have your horizons broadened and you know on the professor side we always tend to think that that's going to be because we I don't know assign some book your sophomore year but really it's just like being around different people um, getting to know what they like liking what they like Um, yeah I remember like so many delightful first experiences with music happening in like dorm rooms at college absolutely uh, I miss that dude in, in my age group that moment never happens anymore, right? Mm-hmm. People are too busy being like Christian slumlords or doing side hustles or whatever to like <laughs> sit around and listen to music anymore, which is a shame, yeah. right? Dudes my age, all they want to do is like flip houses and get rental properties, and I couldn't be more bored to death by any of that crap. Yeah. Um, okay, so your experience with Taylor was primarily college. I would say mine was too, but college on the professor side. In that probably five, six years ago... I got the, the steady stream of students asking me to listen to Taylor Swift because they wanted to share the experience with me, right? And they were really fired up about the music. Some of them wrote about it and wrote really well for Cardinal and Cream. Caroline Heinrichs was one. Shout out Carol if you're listening. Um, she was a big, like, kind of early, you know, on-ramp on to, to Taylor Swift experience for me. But she would... She would send me tracks that she thought I would like, and uh, I would give them a listen. And there have been lots of students like that over the years. So, yeah, being in no way in the target demo for Taylor Swift, um, I really started to respect her just as a writer and, and kind of as a practitioner of creative nonfiction in that the things that make you good at creative nonfiction that we're, that we're working on this semester, Trude, so like writing scene and being sensory and remembering really well and crafting characters that people care about. Like she does this in such a short span of time in these songs that um, a song like All Too Well, you're getting all this great imagery, right? So you're dancing around the kitchen in the refrigerator light or you're singing in the car and getting lost upstate. Like these are real concrete, knowable experiences that so many people have had And I think that part of the genius of that, it speaks to your point about relatability, right? So more than maybe any other artist right now, Taylor trades on this whole idea of listen to the song, superimpose yourself as the main character in the song, 
and in doing so, like it a whole, whole lot because it's about me, but it's really about you. Um, and not a lot of rock stars do that, but she does it maybe better than anybody else. I, and I, think. I think in a way, um, even when she'll shift direction, because she's already earned that relatability with the audience, the audience wants to put themselves in her shoes. Yeah, that's so, right. So I think with this new album, Midnight's, which I wasn't huge on. Yeah, I wasn't either. Um, but she, she went in a different direction with it. It was a bit more... It was a bit more... There's more dirtbag in it. Mm -hmm. um, and she's kind of had this relatability before with past albums that's been wonderful. Yeah. And, I mean, I've seen it with so many fans that they are putting themselves in Taylor's shoes even if they don't fully experience or relate to exactly what's going on totally. in, the, in, the, in the text. And even if it kind of makes you a worse person. <laughs> yeah. Like, like if doing the things that she says or if putting yourself in those shoes and seeing yourself through those lens... It kind of makes you, a, you know, just just an nth degree that much more of a jerk to the people around you. Yeah. Okay. Like, so oh, they don't get me. Let's do a minute on that because that's something that I see year after year here at Union. So, like, a student will recommend a Taylor song to me, and the song will be all about like falling in love and adultery, and then like bitterness on the on the backside of all of it, right? And and to your point, Midnight's to me was really about a secular person dealing with her sin nature, um, which I think is fascinating. I didn't really enjoy the record just as a listener, but I enjoyed, or I guess I appreciated the work that she was trying to do with it. But um, so I'll have this like 18 year old union student who's never dated anybody, never really <laughs> even been on a date. And, and this is not an aspersion. It's just kind of the type of student that we pull. And he or she will be really resonating with this Taylor song that's all about like, you know, sex and adultery and loss and pain yeah. and misery and having experienced none of it. So it begs the question, and I want to hear both of you guys on this. Is that a good thing to experience via a Taylor song that will at least paint an accurate picture of what it feels like so that maybe you won't feel the need to experience it in real life? Well, I think that it is just because... I mean, you know, first and foremost, I think it's good to experience things through art for the same reason. Yeah, totally. You, you know, you can watch a movie about a bad person. You don't have to be a bad person. Yeah. But I think the thing that makes it, you know, that much closer to influencing who you actually are is just the fact that, like, there's this whole thing where because Taylor Swift is relatable, people put themselves in the shoes, like you guys said, of, like, her, the narrator. And when you do that, you want to put yourself in the shoes, even if maybe you don't belong shoes yeah totally and that's why we get the whole like you know you becoming that much more of a dirtbag yourself thing like yeah. with this album you know she has the song talking you know mastermind saying like she kind of masterminded this relationship and really it's my favorite track yeah yeah, yeah 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 but it, it's a great song but it's about her being manipulative totally right? but there was this whole thing on tiktok where um like this people was wild are saying like <laughs> this is their mastermind moment and basically like laying out how they've manipulated significant others oh yeah that is so wild yeah. to me and i would never have known that had you guys not said it due to being 85 years old in my <laughs> spirit but uh but no that's so interesting and so and i want to hear you on this alcazar you can look at that phenomenon and it's easy for me to look at it and go gosh that's horrible you know like it's it's horrible that now like everyone on tiktok is glorying in their mastermind manipulative moment due to her writing a song about it. And so if you're Taylor Swift, do you feel guilty about having put that out into the universe? Or are you still 
happy about it or proud of it as a piece of art? Like, what's what's your response to that? Well, I think, and this is like kind of the caveat to all of what's been said, is that ultimately, like, a song, an album, isn't going to fundamentally alter how someone thinks about the world and behaves, right? If anything, it's going to maybe um, some negative elements of a personality might bubble up. Yeah. But I think Taylor... And this is how I feel about, I think, any, most artists, is mm-hmm. they should just be able to make whatever art they want. And for the most part, like, if someone listens to the album, has a pure heart and discretion, they can simultaneously enjoy and maybe even a little bit relate to what's going on and still understand that that's not who they are. Yeah. Whereas if someone's already struggling mm-hmm. with whatever it is, w- w- being manipulative, for example, yeah, yeah. if that's already in someone's nature... The song, listening to the mastermind, isn't going to make that person more manipulative. It's just going to give them another way for them to think about it and uh, manifest in a way. Yeah. So I wouldn't feel bad if I was Taylor. I think I think it's interesting that she's doing different things. I think she should yeah. keep doing that. Yeah, I mean, you, you could equate it to, like, you know, the Red Hot Chili Peppers doing, like, Under the Bridge didn't make me or anyone want to go do, like, life ending amounts of heroin it was just it was a story about a person Mm -hmm. and you don't immediately want to do all the things that you see people in stories do um let's do a second on this all-time rock stars who have who have traded on relatability so like the the trading on relatability hall of fame for rock stars i've been thinking about it for a few seconds and i'm i'm having trouble coming up with some i've got Joni mitchell yeah so maybe maybe she's on the rushmore of Trading on relatability. Um, who else would be on it? For the most part, I don't think it's a rock star thing. If we're actually saying rock yeah. is a musical genre and not like a you know personality yeah. or a persona, I don't think it's a rock star thing for the most part. Yeah, definitely not Radiohead. Radiohead's thing was we're smarter than you. Oh yeah, <laughs> definitely not The Cure. The Cure's thing was we're more glum than you. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got Springsteen. Oh yeah. Oh yes. yeah. Yeah. Narrative. Yeah. He, in, in some ways, he's the male Taylor Swift, right? Um, place plays a huge role in the songs. He's really narrative. Still, small town Americana. Small town Americana, still super smart. Um, 99th percentile, you know, intelligence, charisma, all, all the things that she brings to the table. But yeah, definitely Springsteen, definitely Joni Mitchell. I can't think of any traditional rock stars that would trade on relatability. I think there's a, a little bit of relatability with... Um, in some ways, with Alex Turner of the Arctic Monkeys, okay, um, definitely not early in their career. Career with like their first album, where they were very kind of like hipster, kind yeah, of yeah. emo indie rock kids. But mm-hmm. there was a, a series of albums before their kind of more recent work, where they a lot of the, the the stuff in the album, a lot of the songs, there was it was it was good kind of loud rock music. Yeah, but there was there was kind of this air of melancholy that was very relatable, and Alex Turner. As a rock star, he wasn't really like you watch Alex Turner interviews, and he's not—he's not really pretentious. Yeah. He seems like a really nice guy, and when you hear him sing about like, like the agony of like losing love, mm-hmm. it's something that many listeners have connected to. I know I have connected to, and because Alex is such a nice person, just yeah. in his everyday life, mm-hmm. or at least in interviews, um, I think it kind of adds that relatability. But to mm-hmm. your point, I don't think. Any rock star or huge artist like that's making kind of rock music or like music that in that way yeah. is really as relatable as Taylor Swift. I mean, I think you could say that Fleetwood Mac did it in a weird way. Yeah. I mean, they were definitely hotter than you and cooler than you, and they were yeah, definitely yeah. higher than you. Yeah, for but, sure. Like 
they did it, but they did it by almost like mythologizing it. Yeah. No, it's that's like right. Things, but from a distance, or like you know, they're ethereal or something. Like yeah. That. Maybe the Eagles. Maybe maybe that early '70s run actually turned out. I think Bob Seger kind of did it. Yeah. For a certain kind of like Midwest dirtbag. Um, Almost I, in a precursor to Springsteen thing. Yeah, totally. I weirdly had Fallout Boy in this category. <laughs> like, if you were going to bars in Chicago in like 2006, you would run into like. 1,200 guys that look like Fall Out Boy. That's actually a great point. That's yeah. Actually, that's very true. And they were kind of singing about real stuff. Um, their lead singer didn't have the traditional like frontman body or persona or look or whatever. And uh, it actually kind of worked. Um, all right. Question number two on Taylor. What is her greatest rock star quality? So when you think about Taylor Swift, when you think about all the, all the ingredients, all the rock star qualities, what's her greatest one? Uh, Trudes, we'll start with you. So this is where the genre thing that I referenced a second ago comes back in because her greatest rock star quality is that she's bringing a non-rock star thing to the table. Mm. And that is, I think, in large part because of her background in country music. Yeah. Because she trades on relatability, like we've all said. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, you know, that's what country music does. Yeah. You know, like the biggest stars of country music are never honestly that hot or that cool. Yeah, you're right. They're like dudes like George Strait in a giant cowboy yeah. hat and dad jeans. Yeah, they're like right? us. Yeah. Yeah, but he has 50 number one hits. Exactly. Because he, yeah, like you said, he's like us. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what she gets is from that country background where like her, you know, her first big song was, you know, about Tim McGraw, about a country singer. Yeah, yeah. She brings that to the table because she gets to be a normal person. She's she's almost charismatic by not being charismatic. Yeah, that's fascinating. I have more on that, but Alcazar, greatest rock star quality. I think for me, and this is where there's kind of a weird, almost a double standard with Taylor, is it's her persona. Yeah. Because if you if you look at if you look at kind of Taylor's history as a as a musician, she's always been in the industry, right? Yeah. And sure, people relate to her. Mm. Sure, she's kind of a millennial and all of those things. But when you really break it down, she doesn't really care about that many people yeah around her yeah um and like she's done the whole thing with dating a bunch of boys same mm-hmm. thing with like you know like maddie healy's done that too any, any yeah, sure. big rock star has dated a bunch of people so she's sure. she's kind of played into the traditional role of a rock star by Very really so. not caring about really anything other than her music and a select few people around her and her and also using her fame as a means of dating other famous people you oh, know, yeah. this is traditional rock star behavior. Which, whether she means it to or not, is ultimately also a means of fueling future songs. It really is, yeah. Like, there's no wasted motion in that approach <laughs> at all. Oh, yeah, I mean, you got Hiddleston, Gyllenhaal, Styles, right? Did she wow. date Harry Styles? Did she date Harry Styles? I, I don't know. It's hard to keep up. Yeah. Hiddleston, though. Yeah. He does nothing for oh, me. Oh, John Mayer. Oh, yeah. he doesn't do anything for me. Either. Yeah, yeah. I think John Mayer is way more charismatic than Hiddleston. Oh, I love John Mayer. Yeah. Very yeah. funny dude. Also a dirtbag. Yeah, uh, no, we, we should do him on the show. <laughs> yeah, we yeah, should yeah, do a yeah. Mayer episode. Uh, yeah, very um, much so. But yeah, I think somehow she's managed to walk this line of being extremely relatable and also this like mega star that's totally unreachable. Yeah. Which is very interesting and doesn't happen. There's like, you could probably name on one hand, like we just talked about, an artist that has that level of fame and is that distant, but it's yeah. also that down to earth. Yeah. Dude, you're right. And you guys said it really well. There's nothing I can add to this category. But I want to use what you're saying as a bridge to the next question, which is what holds her back or what will potentially hold her back. And to me, 
what you said vis-a-vis, what you both said really, vis-a-vis relatability. So when she started out, she was every teenage girl's like imaginary best friend. And now she's every college girl's imaginary best friend. And that's something that like, I don't know, I, I, I never really had that experience with a rock star. Like, I didn't listen to Guns N' Roses in 1991 and think, wouldn't it be great to hang out with Axl Rose? Like, yeah. actually, it was kind of scary. Like, yeah. Welcome to the Jungle is scary. Like, the liner notes are scary. Like, the whole experience, like, didn't make me want to hang out with him. Um, and I don't really know of any of them that I really have wanted to hang out with. But the the Taylor thing is very much like, uh, I think I think people feel like if she lived in my dorm, we would be friends. Or if she lived in my apartment building, we would be friends. And yet... That thing, I don't know how well it, how well it ages, right? Like when she's she's what she's in her thirties now, right? Yeah, early thirties. Yeah, so she's kind of smack dab in the middle of the millennial bullseye in terms of ages. But when she's forty, what does it look like? Mm-hmm. Like, is she doing songs about like you know go, going to the bar with the other moms after soccer? I mean, like what what are we what what's the subject matter when you're kind of through the phase of your life when you're dating a bunch of guys? You know, um, that I think could be a, it could be a holdback. And I'm trying to think of other artists, especially female artists who have navigated that well. Joni Mitchell kind of just hung her hat on being like the poet. Madonna traded up on, on her sexuality right up until the very end. Um, I'm trying to think of big, big mega stars. Dolly Parton. Dolly Parton. Yeah. So there's a there's a paradigm for it working, but I think it's tricky. Yeah, um, I think I'm tempted to say there's nothing holding her back right now, yeah. just because of how insanely popular she is. Oh my gosh, yes. So yeah. I think I think the outcome I see happening, like really worst case scenario, not maybe worst case scenario, but I feel like what's likely going to happen is she's going to enter that sphere of stardom where most of her fans, like dedicated fans, are. The ones that she has right now. Yeah. And she's going to continue to sing to those fans. She'll have people that come along and still listen to her because in the same way that I'll listen to the Beatles, Johnny Cash, sure. whoever. Sure, right? sure. But her main demographic is going to be those people that are her age. Um, and so those songs and that relatability is still going to connect. Yeah. Um, and I think she's still going to just keep making the same kind of... She's going to operate in the same world that she's been operating in um, for so long. I mean, that's not artistically appealing to me. Yeah. But if you're making millions of dollars and selling Dude, but if you play her career a hundred times and at age 55 she's still filling Nissan Stadium because people want to hear All Too Well and Love Story which were songs that she wrote about falling in love when she was 18 um, it's still a pretty good career oh yeah um, and it's at some level it would be weird to see a 55 year old woman singing Love Story but no weirder than singing than Mick Jagger doing Start Me Up at age 82 or whatever he is you know honestly I think Taylor's gonna have better durability than Jagger yeah I don't know I just well that's gonna go back to her that's gonna go back to the country roots thing yeah because that's that's based less in I don't want to oversimplify it but a lot of it is that it's based less less in sexuality yeah that's true so you know like you still see Dolly Parton 
getting you know huge shows and, and even releasing albums. Willie Nelson released an album like last year and he's like 86. Yeah. Right? So like this is something that country artists can do a little more. Yeah, easily. Jagger is not hot anymore. No. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, he's no was longer... Was Jagger ever hot or was he just extremely charismatic? I think he's hot. I, yeah, I want to do a couple seconds yeah, on yeah. this. So I've, I've, let, I've read a lot of uh, Rolling Stone's biographies and, and seen some pictures. Like he, he was definitely... All right, let's do a second on like what kind of hot Jagger was when he was young. Um, I think he was, he wasn't traditionally hot, but he was in that kind of new wave of artists at the time that were like long hair, kind, dirty of, hot. kind of wild. Dirty hot. He had some kind of out of control features, yeah. like the big lips, the big eyes. Yeah. He was kind of art school hot. Like if that Absolutely. guy went to your college and he was like a ceramics major and he hung around in the coffee shop. Yeah. Like everybody would be like, Who, who's that guy? You know? Absolutely. Um, yeah, th- yeah, that's true. It's where part of the hotness is just being distinctive. Yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah. definitely. I think he stood out. And even even in the world of like long-haired 70s rock stars who were wearing like tight hip-hugger jeans or whatever, he still stood out, you know. Yeah, he's yeah. Mick Jagger. Because he's Mick Jagger. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. And the music was good. Let's do uh, 10 seconds of uh, Beatles versus Stones talk. Oof. Where you at? I'm a Stones guy. I'll be honest. Yeah. I'm a Stones guy too. Okay. And I feel a little bit bad about it because the Beatles, everyone loves them. And I do yeah. love the Beatles too. There's just more of Stones records I've connected with over the years. Yeah, the songs are more fun to listen to, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. The Beatles are a, a certain kind of smart guy flex. Yeah. But, uh, but if you're looking for just a good time, maybe it's the Stones. Yeah, that's true. I'm going to go I'm gonna go with the Beatles just because, I mean, like kind of opposite of you, David. Like I've connected more mm-hmm. with like with some of the Beatles stuff. Although also just equally, I have it with a bunch of their stuff. But uh, yeah, I see what you mean. Like, yeah. Rolling Stones, you rock out a little bit more. Yeah, you rock out to them a little bit more. All right, last question on Taylor. What's the trajectory for this person? Self-parody? Death? Continued artistry? What are we looking at for Taylor Swift? Well, she doesn't have the heroin problem that Maddie Healy has. That we as know. As far of. as we know. Yeah, yeah. I think we would, we would know at this yeah, point. Yeah, we would. Um, I think we already talked about it. I think it, like, dare I say, it's going to be self-parody. I think so. I, I think here, here's the calculus that you have to do if you're Taylor. And here's the problem that you have to solve. Do you have another club in your bag that isn't singing about love and loss? Because you're, you're kind of aging out of love and loss as a lifestyle, hopefully. You know, I would want any person to sort of find long-term fulfilling love in a marital covenant. Um, so she's kind of aging out of it. And what does the work look like when you've hung your hat on that for so long? Like she's, I don't want to see her do political. I don't want to see her get into like issues and stuff. I, I, I want to see her, I guess, doing, taking all those powers, right? The powers of scene and character and observation that she really has at like a, uh, a superstar level and apply that to like, other areas of life and writing. I think it could get really interesting, um, but it's going to take a lot of work. But self-parody could be, I mean, you could make a whole billion-dollar career out of that, and it wouldn't be bad. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't. I don't hate that as an outcome. Yeah. Well, I think, so, you know, you mentioned clubs, and I'm going to do a different sports analogy. Yeah. So in baseball, you have, you know, five tool players, but then yeah. you have, you know, guys who can't do everything. And you, you can be a superstar. Yeah. And, you know, you can win MVPs mm-hmm. without being a five-tool player. Yeah. But it probably does mean that your game doesn't age as well, right? Yeah. And I think that might be the Taylor Swift thing because 
I don't think she's a five-tool player. Yeah. Like, she has relatability at a higher level than maybe anybody else. Yeah. But she doesn't have, say, for instance, more traditional charisma. Yeah. In the same way that somebody even just like Matty Healy does. Yeah, it's true. Where, like, he has a a more traditional kind of stage presence. Yeah. And, you know, he can dance and, you know, maybe a lot of, like, hardcore switches probably wouldn't agree with me on this. He'll be interesting in, like, 30 years, though. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Matty Healy will still be the most interesting guy in the room at 55. Yeah. Yeah. But, like, Taylor Swift... You know, she can't dance, not really. Yeah. And she doesn't have that same kind of like stage charisma. Right. Yeah, you so don't she's go not to a five tool player. Well, you don't go to a Taylor show to see her work the room. Yeah. yeah. You go to hear the songs. Yeah. And if we're, if we're being honest, it's not like we're seeing like like nineteen seventy five, I mean we always go back to them because it's just our favorite band, Truman. Mm-hmm. But um like they tour, you see videos of Healy doing crazy stuff on stage, dancing around, all yeah. of that stuff. You don't see that with Taylor. It's really her music, and that's yeah. there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, she is a musician. It makes sure. sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm going to disagree just a little bit with because I think there's a high probability she goes into self parody. But mm-hmm. it's also important to remember that she understands that relatability is important, and she's been really singing about her life experience up until yeah. this point. And so I think there's a very real possibility, especially because she's also been very smart with how her music sounds and how it has evolved where she's always working with what's hot what's good yeah like she worked with Jack Antonoff in these last few records because I'm sure they're also friends but also because he's what's listenable right now mm-hmm. um, and I think as she grows more as a person and experiences different types of emotions in life I think there's a very real possibility that she starts to look more inward and draws that relatability out in her songwriting yeah. and I hope that's kind of where she goes too like you mentioned yeah no, I would love that. I would love to see it. Um, let's do a minute on Ticketmaster. Um, <laughs> let's talk about this because going to war with Ticketmaster is kind of a, a, a Mount Rushmore level like rock star flex in that Pearl Jam did it. They were huge. We'll do Pearl Jam on the show. Um, and Taylor is now embroiled in something with Ticketmaster. What is it, Trudes? What can you tell me about it? So basically the deal is that Ticketmaster has a monopoly. Yeah, yeah. So how how Ticketmaster works is it's not based off of a set price. It's based off demand. So if a lot of people want to buy tickets to a show, the price of the ticket is going to go up. That's right. And they have gone up. They have have skyrocketed. Yeah. To the point where... um, Even a nosebleed in Nissan Stadium is what? Nosebleeds are $300. Oh, my goodness. My dad wanted to take my two sisters and my mom to a Taylor show. Yeah. And this was kind of the first time it was like, let's let's take let's him to a concert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he got on, it was like $800 That's for insane. like nosebleeds. And there was just no way. Yeah. I want to say a thing too about Nissan. It's a terrible venue. Um, <laughs> yeah. I've been to football games there. Uh, those venues about which people say there are no bad seats does not apply to Nissan. It's mostly bad there seats. There are bad seats. <laughs> yeah. If you're in the upper deck, you feel like you're a mile and a half away. You feel like airplanes are flying like beneath you. Um, it would be better to just... I don't know, watch a concert video on YouTube yeah. than pay 300 bucks for a seat like that. It's crazy to have one of the biggest venues in Nashville, of all places, be just an awful venue. Yeah. Because it's Nashville. Yeah. Yeah. But that's kind of sidetracked. But, um, you know, Ticketmaster has a monopoly, and so these prices just keep going up, and there's essentially nothing that anyone can do about it, mm-hmm. to the point that now Taylor Swift has kind of gone to war with them, like you said. And another thing that kind of speaks almost to her just, like, level of cultural power right now. Yeah. Um, the Senate is yeah. doing a hearing on Ticketmaster because yeah. of what's happened with them and Taylor Swift. 
Same thing happened to Pearl Jam. I love this. I love this uh, history repeating itself thing. And it got to the point, I don't know if she's gotten to this point yet. Pearl Jam had to testify before Senate. And so you had like Jeff Amon in like the sideways cocked hat and like Stone, who was always kind of the spokesman for Pearl Jam, kind of looking looking a little bit corporate and, and Ed. And, you know, for them, from a PR standpoint, it became this we're sticking it to the man on behalf of the fans thing. And it really engendered a lot more love for Pearl Jam. Like people love Pearl Jam anyway, but like when they went to war with Ticketmaster on behalf of the fans and in an attempt to keep their ticket prices reasonable, people love them for it. And I'm guessing the same thing will happen with Taylor. Well, I think I should add a clarification. Yeah. Swift isn't going to war with Ticketmaster. In fact, mm-hmm. they, there was kind of a, a moment when it was all blowing up and it was it was made very clear that Swift's team wasn't like directly from her, but they were like, we're going to let Ticketmaster handle this. Mm-hmm. So this might backfire on her because yeah. she isn't going to war with them. Okay. But Ticketmaster and the whole situation is going to Congress. Well, she went to war with them in the way that, you know, you can kind of gesture at something without actually doing it, which is to say that she tweeted about it. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, but Taylor Swift can, it was more than easy for her to buy up all the tickets and sell them independently. Yeah. Like, so she's not actually doing anything tangible to yeah. fight Ticketmaster. And that'll be a thing, like, for instance, when you talk about, like, what is her future traje- trajectory? Yeah. And, like, you know, to what extent is she going to stay relatable? All these things. Well, if at some point she's so big that she doesn't care if, you know, fans get tickets or if, yeah. you know, she can actually go to war with Ticketmaster, it doesn't. Yeah. You know, maybe it doesn't work anymore. Yeah. There's almost this point where if you get that huge and you're that rich and no one sees you as, like, an artist who needs to be supported or who needs to make it. Then this tide turns to where fans begin to look at you as someone who you owe them something. And if and when that happens with Taylor, it'll be fascinating to see how it plays out. Um, And she may have to do something a little more aggressive. I mean, it begs the question, and we have this question with like SEC football all the time. Like if you're Alabama and Florida and Tennessee – like, why do you need the NCAA? Like, isn't it just window dressing to involve the NCAA in this billion-dollar business that you could run independently of them completely? Um, and you could say the same thing about Ticketmaster. You know, Taylor could easily book these venues and sell all the tickets on her own and, you know, circumnavigate this thing altogether. But, um, yeah, I don't begin to know the machinations of, like, business at that level. It must be dizzying. Yeah. Um, Let's end with one more question. This is off book. But just from the two of you, I'd be curious to hear, would you want to be that famous? So you're selling out Nissan three nights in a row. You're doing this in every city that you go to. There's so many people who are getting rich off of you that any choice that you make has a fascinating and huge ripple effect for like thousands and thousands of people and their livelihoods. Would you want that? No. No way. Okay. That's just not... I, I think... There's nothing wrong, I think, with necessarily wanting that, per yeah. se. Um, but for me, I just... I like to... I don't I don't want to be noticed by a bunch of people. I don't okay. want to be looked at. <laughs> no, Alcazar. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's stay here for a second. Yeah. Um, and because this is radio, not television... Um, I'm going to describe your look a little bit. You're, you're a guy with a distinctive look... And you walk into a room, and people people know that Alcazar's in the room. We got the like paint spattered, like vintage University of Michigan crew neck, 
Um, you have interesting hair. You know, you got the earring. You're a distinctive looking dude. Like, you're not trying to hide, right? I, th- I don't think I'm trying to hide. And I do like fashion. I want to yeah. wear something that looks nice. Mm-hmm. Um, but <laughs> at the same time, like... There's a magnitude and a scale there yeah, that yeah. maybe... Um, like, someone... Like, if I'm in a coffee shop and I know, I know there's a likelihood that someone might be looking at me, that's yeah. fine. Yeah. But I'm just imagining that times a million. Yeah. And that's that's just too much for me. Yeah. Um, like, I like the... Like, I always enjoyed... Um, whenever I've gone to New York, even with what I'm wearing, mm-hmm. I feel like no one's looking at me. Totally. I'm just yeah. lost in this crowd. That kind of really comforting feeling would go away. Yeah. If I had that. And that is a comforting feeling. You're right. I get to go here and disappear. And that's not on the table for her anywhere in the world, probably. Absolutely. And the difference is, like, if you walk into a coffee shop, you know, here on campus or here in town or whatever, and people notice you, like, it's not just that people notice you. People know you. Mm-hmm. And that's a very different feeling from people just noticing you, right? Yeah, that's true. So I think, I think that's the difference. It's like, I would, I would, I, you know, I would love to have as much money as Taylor Swift. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be famous. Yeah, yeah. And it, it would be hard to have one without the other. And, um, you know, it's the, it's the particular, like, lot in life of the rock star who's famous at that level. Like, we, we enjoy going to the coffee shop and getting noticed and having people recognize us. But, yeah, I can't imagine it on that scale. I mean, there's a reason every huge star at some point writes something about how much it sucks to be famous, right? Yeah. The On the Road song, the Fame yeah. the Fame Sucks song. Yeah. Has she done The Fame Sucks? Not that I know. I don't I'm know her library that, that, yeah, yeah. that well. I don't think that she has, but I think this goes back to the continued artistry thing. Yeah. I think... Maybe that's the next record. I think that's <laughs> yeah. somewhere that she's going to go, whether it's a record or a song or whatever. Yeah. If she does stay relevant as an artist, I think it'll be... Now, know, if, she does, if she does Fame Sucks... Here's the the ceiling floor kind of situation with that, which is we live in this era where everybody just nakedly and unabashedly wants to be famous, right? Mm-hmm. So TikTok, social media, um, it's created this paradigm where like everybody's kind of just upfront about how they want to be famous, how they want to have an audience. So if she does a record that craps on the idea of being famous, I think she runs the risk of alienating a lot of her her people um, what do you think about that I think it really does depend on how people feel about her in the moment because if she does that Taylor Swift has the power where she could write a record like that and then completely change the narrative on what it means to be famous and yeah, you're right. people start going I don't want to be famous yeah because of that album so I think it just depends on where she's at yeah like to, to go back to Maddie Healy you don't want the it's hard to be a rock star record from him because he looks like he's having so much fun being a rock star yeah. Like, I want him yeah. to just keep being a rock star. You want him to want to be a rock star. I want him to want to be a rock star because he's good at it, you yeah. know? Like, that would be like Jordan coming out and saying, I hate I hated basketball all these years. Yeah. Um, it would it would bum you out. But you know that by the way he plays it, he doesn't hate it. In fact, he loves it. And that's what you want to see. I think that's what we want to see from Taylor. Oh, yeah. Continued artistry. Continued loving being a rock star and navigating some of these, like, uh, subject matter hurdles that she's going to have to overcome but which are in no way insurmountable i think if she did the like don't want to be famous thing the way that she would do it that would preserve like the vibe she's had going is you do it in like the all shucks manner yeah where it's like all oh, people are looking at me but i'm just a normal person that yeah. would sell that would sell dude and so from a pr standpoint we're both in pr writing class together right now i'm the teacher of it but um i that would take only a week of 
I don't know, getting photographed at Whole Foods or like just being out in public in Nashville in normal person kinds of ways, right? Um, I think that would take a popular person and make her even more popular. It would be hard to do. Yeah. Because going to Whole Foods as Taylor Swift would be a, I was about to say, a bit of a deal. Can she even do that? <laughs> well, I think at that point, like doing normal things and getting photographed by you know paparazzi doing normal things and trying to hide from paparazzi while doing normal things... That would almost be part of the marketing push at that point. Dude, that's what I'm thinking. In, in a similar way that, like, you guys are a little too young for this reference, but there was a time where Nicholson was the biggest movie star in the world, mm-hmm. right? He was the guy, um, really, for a long time. Like, he had a great run from, like, I don't know, him being 30 to him being 65, where he was massive. He was one of the top five that there was. But through that, he kept going to Laker games. He kept kind of going out in L.A. and doing normal L.A. guy stuff. And I think people liked him more for it. You know, it, it gave him a level of accessibility that I think... Um, who's another kind of curmudgeonly movie star? Like Gene Hackman didn't have that. I right? love Gene Hackman, dude. I love Hackman, too, dude. <laughs> yeah. I'm a huge Hackman guy. But oh, yeah. Hackman wasn't trading on, like, I'm a nice guy who goes to Laker games and parties like a normal person. Hackman was like... I'm an artiste. I'm mad at everybody on the set. Everybody hates me. But, yeah. you know, my Bill movies. Murray does it. Yeah, Murray kind of does it. That's right. Basketball games. Yeah. The whole thing. Bill Murray does it. Yep. No, you're right. You're right. So maybe that's a trajectory for her. I could I could see it. I don't hate that. Boys, this has been fun. This has yeah. been 41 minutes of us doing what we do, which is talk about famous people and uh, go down all kinds of rabbit trails, but <laughs> enjoyable ones. Uh, we will be back with, what are we thinking for the next one, Bono? Bono would be fun. That's a huge swing, dude. We yeah. got we got to address Bono. At I got to interview my dad on on Bono. <laughs> Maybe we, we all go home and yeah. I was going to say interview our dads, but my my dad was a generation before Bono. I'll interview myself on. Yeah, that. my dad loves <laughs> U two. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. U two is a big dad band. If you're like a middle aged guy right yeah. now, U two is a is a big deal. I'm not myself a huge U two guy, but uh, we'll get into it on the next episode of Charismatic Dirtbags, and we will see you next time.